Welcome to episode two of the second season of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital culture and change. I'm Paul Thomas. And I'm Zoe Ammer. Our podcast aims to bring you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. We've got a great episode for you this week with Vicky Charles from Shelter. We covered a number of subjects with Vicky, including moving to a new job at the height of the pandemic. And I think, isn't it strange how that doesn't sound absolutely mad anymore? And how we can create uh, or embed ourselves in an organisation's culture, despite the physical distance between us all. We also covered social media, which has been in the news a lot in the last few weeks and something we wanted to discuss today, Zoe. Absolutely. So a social media story that really caught my eye this week uh, was about the new BBC social media guidelines, uh, which caused an absolute um, uh, a bit of a reaction on, on Twitter uh, when they were published last week. Um, and I then decided, well, I'm going to go away and have a, a look at these. So we will include a link to those in, in the show notes. And I have to say that I think the actual guidelines lines themselves are perhaps a little bit more nuanced. Um, there is some sensible stuff there in places, uh, but there are also some things which frankly I find a bit worrying. For example, about encouraging uh, BBC staff not to get involved in campaigns. And there's already been quite a lot of pushback about that on social media with people saying, well, it's okay for BBC presenters to wear poppies, but yet you're not happy for us to uh, tweet our, our support of certain particularly uh, important campaigns going on online. Um, there was an interesting point in the guidelines as well about threads and how you shouldn't get involved in rebuttals, but you should uh, start your own thread. And, and to me, that's missing some of the points about social media, about the fact that it is social. It's, it's about discussion and, and debate. And absolutely, the debate has become rather febrile over the last year uh, and, and is not for the faint-hearted. Um, but, but surely BBC staff, if, if anyone, should be out there discussing the, the key issues of, of, of the day. Um, three other, two other points which worried me somewhat were about how the personal brand should absolutely come second to the employer brand. And I think the two things very much need to work in partnership. Uh, and what I think is a really interesting situation for the BBC is absolutely the journalists themselves shouldn't become the story. But nevertheless, people do follow certain journalists because and they're a reason why people engage with the story. So I don't think you can completely take personality out of the equation. I don't think that's how news coverage or indeed social media works. I was going to say that's something in terms of personal brand that I know I've been guilty of using that phrase in the past and actually it's made me reconsider using that at all. I just don't think it's right to talk about it in terms of, of personal brand on, on social media because what we're talking about there is so all-encompassing. It's not about brand, it's about who you are as a as a human being. These social channels tend to be made up of almost everything about us. Yes, we might put a front on, we might change the way we we speak to suit the channel, but they're reflective of us as individuals. So everything that's encompassed under that idea of personal brand just stretches so far. Um, and you're right, you're absolutely right. Um, the reason I follow Gary Lineker, for example, on, on social media is yes, because he's an ex-footballer and hosts Match of the Day. 
But it's the other stuff that he shares, the stuff about him, his life and his beliefs that actually make me continue to follow him. And the same with everybody else. So I think there's a really interesting discussion to be had around what personal brand actually means and what we're actually talking about, because I think we're talking about sort of fully rounded human beings playing secondary to the employer that they work for, which I think is is the, the worry for me. Yes, exactly. And that doesn't feel terribly 2020, doesn't it? Given that no. we can now all see into other people's homes and their various um, working lives and 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 pets and, and, and partners wandering, wandering past in, in, in the background. Uh, absolutely. I think there are definitely quite a lot of points in these new social media guidelines that do seem... Um, slightly odd in, in in some ways and out of step with how people are using social media now so there's a point in there um about using emojis uh, and to be aware that accidentally or deliberately these can undercut an otherwise impartial post and and i think that goes to one of my other reflections on these new guidelines was that the whole tone of it uh is something that does feel a bit like uh, risks being slapped, um, being very sort of strict about the way people use social media. And really, a, a social a social media guidelines like this has got to be about empowering people, absolutely giving them a sense of what they can and also what they they can't do online. But absolutely, you, you need to give people a little bit of leeway and to to trust them. I mean, we're talking about the BBC for goodness sake. They've got some incredible brains working for them um, and people who are very adept on on social media uh, and there is something about the the tone of these guidelines which um I, I i'm slightly uncomfortable with yeah i think i completely agree and i think that was one thing that so i wrote the um well, maybe 10 years ago now wrote the first social media policy and, and strategy for grant thornton and uh, I think it still remains in place today. There were some sensible decisions that we made then about, um, you know, these these platforms are social. They are people-led. Um, so we wanted our people to approach it uh, by knowing what they could do rather than what they shouldn't do. There was a point that I made um, very early on about, you know, you only read policy if you think you might have broken it. Nobody sits down to read a policy, although we've just proven the rule is slightly different because we've sat down and read this policy. Um, but nobody reads it unless they, they, they think they might have broken it. And I think putting people on the back foot and making them think about all the things they're not allowed to do just stops them using the channel in the way that it's meant to be used. So my worry is that you'll start to see um, BBC employees starting to think, well, can I do that? Can I say this? And it will just change the way that they use the, the channel even more. So I think there is a wider discussion, a bigger societal conversation that needs to be had about the way that we approach these channels as human beings, as employees, as rounded people. Um, and I think it's it's being brought to life in many, many different ways. I mean, one of the questions I had in the back of my mind, and I don't know, but you know, for example, if Marcus Rashford was a BBC employee, would be he be allowed to do what he's doing on social media at the moment, which is life changing for so many people? Would that be would that be frowned upon? Would that be you know too critical of politicians, or, or for example? Um, and I think also we need to recognise that we are seeing this in isolation. Uh, the reason why we, we you know the reason people jump up and down on it is a problem. Um, already with social media that we tend to be quite reactionary to these things and I think when you actually see this in in hand going hand in hand with other things like BBC values 
um, code of conduct and things like that um, that I think are, are, must play a role. So for me, I think social media guidance, language is critical, tone is critical, but also it does have to be part of a bigger whole. I think in terms of a code of conduct, for example, how you hold yourself as an employee um, in all different contexts, not just online, in the office, outside of the office, on public transport, in the pub after work, all of those things are exactly the same, uh, should be treated in exactly the same way. And employees should be given freedom to express themselves without too much prejudice. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's right. And and actually, that, that is uh, one of the things that, that um, I think could, could have some unintended consequences for these new guidelines, given that the BBC is so huge and such a, a, a big employer and also a real household name brand. Um, what could potentially happen uh, is that this could start some kind of culture wars amongst their staff uh, and there was uh, one of their presenters actually um, from one of my kids favorite tv programs this amazing amazing doctor called uh, dr Rungs, uh was tweeting just after the guidelines got released last week um saying that she was deeply concerned by them and and uh, she's someone um who would campaign on some of these uh, bigger issues that we talked about and they go to the very heart of who she is and how she identifies and you can't ask people to just leave that part of themselves at the door when they come to work in 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 the morning that that just doesn't seem right not ethically um psychologically it it really seems like so much to ask from someone and and it, it doesn't seem realistic or or fair there was an interview that I read yesterday with Gary Lineker where he said that he didn't have made any major problems with it and he'd had discussions with the uh, the management of the BBC about his use of social media and that they felt roughly what he did fell within, um, fell within the guidelines. However, I think you're absolutely right. I think there will be a point in time where somebody falls foul of the guidelines in some way, shape or form or um, employees decide that they're not willing to work for an organisation that is that draconian um, over uh, what is basically a fundamental um, human right to be able to use these channels if you want to use them. You also wanted to talk about Chrissy Teigen. Now, this is something that um, uh, you introduced me to, and then I went back and had a look and just thought was was amazing and, and worthy of, of, of a massive uh, comment on our podcast because this is fundamentally shifting the way that celebrities are using these channels yes that's right and that's why I wanted to mention it and, and I think we should say it at this point because it's such a uh, difficult and sensitive issue that she's very bravely started a very important conversation about and that we're about to uh, discuss um, this is something that some people might find distressing and if it is something that you might find distressing then please feel free to, to skip ahead um, to, to the interview. Um, but the reason why this was something that, that very much caught my, my eye uh, is that this, this whole issue of uh, late stage baby losses is, is something which uh, has, has happened to a, a couple of, of friends of mine and seeing what they've had to go through and the way in which Chrissy Teigen has, has very bravely describe what happened to her family uh, and, and the loss of, of her baby boy and how she's used social media to do that. I think there's something incredibly courageous and, and, and really interesting here. Um, so for those of you who haven't seen this story, um, unfortunately, there were uh, some 
really significant problems with the the, the baby and and the pregnancy uh, and she had to, to to give birth early and, and very sadly um that the baby did did not survive which which is just heartbreaking and i think any parent um did any human being will will, will have seen that this is just absolutely one of the worst things that, that that could happen but what she did which i think is incredibly brave um is that she documented this on social media uh so it popped up first on twitter where she talked about um this is what has happened to me this is how we feel uh and then just last week i think it was um she posted this incredibly eloquent incredibly articulate essay on on medium about why she'd chosen to do that and how she feels now and what the whole experience of this has, has been like for her um and as you were saying one of the reasons why i think it's it's so fascinating um is that Firstly, she's she's created this this incredible space for people to talk about an issue which is still seen as a taboo subject, and she's very bravely done that at a time when she's gone through uh, a, a huge amount of, of trauma, the worst thing imaginable. But it's also so different from the way that celebrities sometimes do use social media, which is all about validation and promotion and and having something that you you want to share with the world and get that uh support for that's perhaps a little bit more commercial um but i just wanted to mention a, a couple of things that she she put in the medium essay specifically about that point again i think this is so incredibly refreshing she's says here in terms of some of the criticism she's had for sharing the photos i cannot express how little i care that you hate the photos how little I care that it's something you wouldn't have done. I lived it, I chose to do it, and more than anything, those photos aren't for anyone, but the people who have lived this or are curious enough to wonder what something like this is like. These photos are only for the people who need them. The thoughts of others do not matter to me. To use social media, to use your convening power as a celebrity to begin those difficult conversations um, and to create this space for others to discuss a, a very, very challenging topic during this time. Key Charles is Assistant Director of Technology and Data at Shelter UK. She is passionate about the value of technology in supporting charities to deliver objectives, improve ways of working and reach beneficiaries and supporters. She has worked in technology, data and digital for over 20 years, both in public and not-for-profit sectors. And she recently joined Shelter as Assistant Director for Technology and Data and was previously Assistant Director of Technology at Click Sargent. During this time, Vicky has led and delivered large-scale change programmes for digital and technology, focusing on strategy, ways of working and culture change. We began the conversation by talking about Vicky recently joining Shelter and hearing about what it's like to start a new role during the pandemic. I'm conscious of the fact that I'm having lots of introduction meetings um, and I know nobody, but um, I'm trying very hard to kind of add an element of personality I suppose for want of a better word to it so giving um sharing something about myself with the people that I'm meeting with and creating the opportunity for them to share back I'm hoping that's part of their culture and actually people have been so receptive to it I think therefore it is not only that but I've, I've received so many welcome emails from people that I've got no idea who they are 
um, which I think that must say something about their culture too. And it's really positive, actually. And what is it like starting a new role during <laughs> lockdown? Because obviously culture is really key, as you say. Um, but it's, uh, tell us what it's like and what else you'd advise other people in that situation, because it's a really unique challenge, isn't it? It is. I, I certainly never saw this coming, I'll be honest. Um, for me, I think it is, it's really strange, for want of a better word. I mean, I'm, I'm in the same office environment in terms of I'm at home in my office. I'm using virtually the same equipment. I'm accessing the same systems because both charities use Office 365. Um, but I'm really conscious that it's completely different. And I think what's, what's really key for me is that, you know, two weeks ago, working at Click Sergeant, um, I had mechanisms in place for that social interaction, for that social contact, you know, where, whether it was a tea break with people or staff were messaging me, you know, on Teams. I was constantly in contact with people every minute of the day. And suddenly overnight, that's just disappeared. And it's not, it's not to kind of sort of do a, you know, it's, it's not to say, oh gosh, it's terrible, because it's not at all. But I think I'm just really aware of the fact that I have to work harder at building those relationships and building them a lot quicker than maybe you would do usually. Um, I guess they have all those structures in place. You've just got to find them, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. And and for me, I think, well, I'm probably um, more eager than, I've, than I usually am in terms of I'm having those meetings with people. And if somebody says, oh, let's have a regular catch up. I'm like, yes, absolutely. Let's put it in the diary. <laughs> Whereas before I might have been, yeah, we'll get to that in a few weeks time. Um, but equally, I'm really using technology to help me. So because it, it can be hard when you don't know people. So I'm using Teams, the messenger in Teams to contact people for that, the, you know, those quick and formal conversations. And I, I today I went into the Yammer group um, and just announced myself to the charity, whereas normally I probably wouldn't do that. <laughs> um, but I'm just trying to utilise ways to get to know people. I, I think my my sort of tips would be don't underestimate the need for that personal connection. Um, definitely use the technology to help you. Zoe, you sent me a blog to read. So I'm gonna, I've, I've stolen a tip from that, actually. There was a tip in that that said about identifying someone who can help you with those questions that you would normally just ask in the kitchen or the person next to you. And I've done exactly that. I've, I've I found someone who have said to her, is it OK if I just ask you random questions throughout the day? And she's like, absolutely, yes. <laughs> and then there's also... Um, some of the other ADs in, in my uh, directorate have just off their own back said to me, if you've got questions about, is that meant to happen? Is that strange? Or, or you kind of have that incredulous moment where you think, was that, was I there? Did I, did that just happen? Then come back to them and ask. And I think that's probably been a real saving grace for me. That sounds really nice, actually. It, I mean, I suppose that those sorts of interactions do give you a bit of a, uh, an idea of the culture. It sounds like people are very welcoming and friendly and there's some self-awareness about where the, the technology can be a, a bit of a barrier. Um, are there any socials or things like that on, online that they, they do that you can you can join? Well, I'll be honest with you, I don't know. I've, I've heard of a games night in, in, in one of the finance teams, which sounds fantastic. When I was at Click Sergeant, we created a lot, a lot of different ways to do this. Um, I think because we were really conscious that actually everyone responds to this environment very differently. 
and there's no one size fits all. So we ended up creating lots of different ways and then tried to work out which ways worked and which ways didn't. So, for example, we had um, the last Friday of every month, we had drinks via Zoom. Um, and it was very much just a pop in, pop out, you know, as, as you please. And actually, to be honest, actually everyone attended, um, which I think probably shows that, that they wanted that social, social connection. We also used to do um, weekly stand ups. So just something where the team can come along and talk about what they're up to, what are the bar- barriers they're facing. Um, one of my personal favourites, I know my teams used to put up with, and, and I haven't yet introduced to my new team, so it's like a, it's like a nice surprise. Um, at the start of every meeting that I tend to chair, I always ask them to share something that's been a success. So something, it could be in your personal life or your or professional, and then also share something that's keeping you up at night. Just because I just I think it's really important for people to be able to share with each other and to get comfortable. Um, so and and also actually I've noticed both charities do those all staff updates, which are always really positive. Everyone joins those, which is which is really good. That's a really nice idea. We um, I I stole hook line and sinker. I think it was from um, Twitter in the end. I was listening to Bruce Daisley. If you listened to his um, his podcast. I think so. Um, and when he was at Twitter, he shared this idea. I think it, I think it was his or somebody else that did this thing called Tea Time, and we implemented it at, at um, the place that I used to work. And um, it was good. It was Thursday night, four o'clock, Thursday afternoon, four o'clock, um, and it happened by hook or by crook. Yeah. And anyone that could make it made it. And all we would do is ask pretty much those two questions of the room, um, ask people to feedback on any projects that they needed help on or anything mm-hmm. that they wanted to share. And we just gave them tea and coffee and, and cakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it. Um, yeah. No no sort of fixed agenda, no, um, you know, no real, um, uh, yeah, no real structure to it, but just an opportunity for people to come together. Zoe, how do you do that in a consultancy business? Well, what we do actually is, is, is not something, um, it's something very similar. So we do, because uh, so we have a very active Slack community, my team. So every every Friday we we have a weekly stand up, which which really helps. And it's, it's, it's a really nice way to bring the team together because all my team are freelance. Uh, so people can also share their successes mm. from, from their own businesses as well. And that's always really nice to see because you mm. feel like everyone's rooting for each other. Uh, I think it is a challenge when everyone's working remotely, isn't it, about how you bring them together? You literally do not have the water cooler. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think you, I mean, I something we used to do at Click Sergeant, especially in, in finance, they used to do it a lot, would be um, incentivise bringing stuff together through pizza. But of course, you can't do that now either. Not unless you're, I, did, I actually looked into how to send takeaways to each of my, my team's addresses, but was thwarted by obviously data protection. I couldn't have access to their home addresses. Um, but also, it was a logistical nightmare trying to work it out with Just Eat. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, that must be a that's 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 a real challenge. We're looking at something similar for um, 
social CEOs judging panel because normally I, I bake a cake and you know people get excited about it but um, if I put that cake in the post it's going to get very squashed and probably a bit stale by the time it, it reaches people um, but yeah I think there's a, a really interesting points and in, and you've described the, the the challenges and I guess also the opportunities that come with starting a new job during lockdown um, really well do you think that organizations need to need to to do more on on this generally I mean do you think that they need to take a very different approach to inductions I loved your point there about having a really good understanding of whether your your new hires are extroverts and introverts because I think that's that's so important um and perhaps even more important in this context so do you think there's there's more that employers need to to do to help give new new staff a a, a nice warm welcome I love the idea of doing that I I wonder whether though organizations are almost waiting to see what the what the new normal will look like um you know because I think for charities for the last few months we've been very much in crisis mode and we're now just emerging from that um and I wonder whether it's I think there are huge amounts of opportunities to do that. You know, so for example, my view is you could have some really great video introductions to the charity, like from the CEO or from, you know, from the senior leadership teams, from key people. Um, Because at the moment, the inductions tend to include lots of e-learning modules, which you spend hours working your way through. Um, But I I do wonder whether, because it, it takes some investment, I wonder whether charities and other organisations are waiting to see whether or not they'll need to commit that investment. Yeah, it's difficult to know, I think, how many people are also joining new organisations. I mean, obviously, there are people joining to this during this time. I think for, for me, I think I've been told that of my tier, I'm the third one to join during this period. They've got some experience of supporting staff at this time, but, but nothing, I don't think there's been much change to the induction process to accommodate that. Yeah, you're right. I think a lot of organisations are kind of waiting to to see, aren't they, whether mm. this is long term really entrenched change to the, the way we all work. Um, just as you were talking, I was thinking there could be some nice opportunities to do something really creative, couldn't I? I mean, imagine if everyone who joins the, you know, joins the organisation, even if you're really junior, you get a personalised welcome message from the CEO. Yeah. That would be lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and absolutely, and also there's there's the opportunity to really onboard new staff. I think with the brand, mm-hmm. and and your kind of your key messages and what it actually means for for the organisation. I think as as we kind of come out of this, that um, that we'll see more and more changes like this. Um, at least I hope that's the case. I think you're right. I've just taken on a client actually, um, and part of what they've asked me to do is align. Uh, social media digital strategy with their um, with their brand proposition, which is in progress as well. Mm-hmm. And actually seeing that laid out in a document really, really helps you get a feel for what the organisation is is trying to do and then enables you to find the where they're excelling at that and where the gaps mm-hmm. are. So I think that's a really, really helpful place to start. Yeah, I think that's a really, that's a really, really good point, actually, how you align the employee experience with with the brand. As you say, I can see there's some some really good opportunities to do that if if you're working remotely. Um, 
so let's let's talk about um you a bit more Vicky so you've got this fantastic fantastic uh range of experience so you've held some really interesting senior roles in digital charities most recently at ClickSard and obviously now at Shelter uh and you've been working in these two amazing charities time of massive change uh can you share some examples of how both charities use of digital change during COVID-19 yeah I mean just just to reiterate that it's only day five at shelter so um but I I do but I do think there are examples I can share that I think are common to both charities um I mean a key one is is obviously the ways of working I mean we've we've gone from being predominantly office based with staff you know obviously both charities would have had staff that were home based um but most staff would have been in the office three or sort of four or five days a week um yeah um and I think um it's been I think it's been really impressive actually the speed at which both charities have been able to enable and support virtual working for their staff I mean it's been difficult without a doubt and I know that a lot of other charities have struggled and we were we were um, fortunate in that we already had that infrastructure in place to enable it but I think for both the charities you know it's involved um, mass deployment of laptops um it's been um you know stripping back equipment from the offices to give them to staff to work at home to make sure they've got suitable equipment i mean click sergeant initially went with a more of a hybrid approach so um used all the equipment they had um also leased laptops in a very short term but that's so expensive so quickly replaced them with purchased devices and then also um supported staff to use their own devices because they just didn't have enough to deploy in the time that we had. But equally, somebody said to me the other day, and I completely agree, that if six months ago we had been told that we had to move to a virtual working environment, it would have been chaos. People would have found, they would have challenged it. They would have said, you know, there would have been a lot of fear, a lot of barriers put up. But actually, you know, in effect, most organisations had one to two weeks to make it happen. And for the most, and, and certainly for Shelter and Click Sergeant, they were, as I said, they had the infrastructure in place to support it, but they were up and running very quickly. But I think also, I mean, for, for both charities, I'm sure, but there was a real push to make, to kind of go for a digital first approach. I think prior to that, it was very much blended. So you, you would use, you would have face-to-face services and you would use digital as, as a tool, I think. Whereas that option just disappeared almost overnight. Um, so certainly for Click Sergeant, they had to digitalize most of their face-to-face services really quickly. Um, and I think, and, and for both really, I mean, it, it was about providing that support that you would normally provide, whether it's in the community or through social workers face-to-face, but then doing it over live chat or telephone or using WhatsApp or Facebook groups, um, you know, and all of the kind of online resources in the websites and doing it at a time when, there was just an unprecedented demand for services. I mean, the, the demand for services just massively increased almost overnight, which was incredibly challenging. Um, and at the same time, having to really push digital for our income generation, um, you know, because again, face-to-face fundraising, mass events just all stopped. And as you know, I'm sure you know, you guys know in great detail that the impact on income on many charities has been so significant. And so the ability to adapt and use digital for fundraising has been absolutely essential. 
It's interesting, though. I, I've seen some really fantastic campaigns and some really successful campaigns, but I think also we've learned a lot from it. I think there's probably some campaigns that we've um, spent too long perfecting and actually probably could have got out earlier, or some campaigns that maybe just weren't necessarily, didn't quite meet the, the market that we thought it would meet. As you move, as we move forward, digital is going to be at the forefront of all our kind of income generation and, and service delivery. I think it mirrors what's been happening with the world, the wider world, doesn't it? Um, nobody really knew what people, what what the general population, like the world population really felt and could bear. Mm. Um, and I think there's been an adjustment period as we've started to try and figure out what what people want and what they're able to, to sort of tune into. Mm. So I think sophistication mm. around the message has is, is sort of increased. And we've been talking mm. on this podcast about uh, community and local um, has really, really been a, a big challenge. Mm. So where the big charities probably see some drop off, the smaller local mm. charities are hopefully seeing a bit more engagement and mm. a bit more local people doing things mm. for local good. You'd, you'd hope to think, though, after six months that, that people will start to find their feet. And as you mm. said, uh, it, it will only start to grow from here as, as we, we, you know, we test the waters mm. and we know what works with, with any mm. audience. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I mean, I was looking at on Twitter at the weekend and I was seeing all the different ways um, runners were competing in the marathon, although not quite competing in the marathon, and just using social media to increase their potential donor pools and people to support them. And, you know, a year ago, so many of those kind of supporters probably wouldn't have thought to use Twitter or even LinkedIn to try and encourage people to support them. Um, so that's really, I think that's really positive. I mean, I think interestingly as well, there's um, obviously there's been like a, a reduced reliance or use, reduced usage around cash for obvious reasons. And I think what's been really interesting about that is um, the, the kind of the reemergence of QR codes. Because um, for years, we were being told by so many people, no, don't use QR codes. They're out of date. They're out of fashion. Nobody uses them. And suddenly, they're being used everywhere. Uh, for Click Sergeant, moved very quickly, getting contactless in their charity shops. Shelter already had them. It's interesting because I think in the past, pre-COVID, it would have probably have taken us significantly longer to define and implement projects especially around technology, but considering like contactless and also for both um, Click Sergeant and Shelter, they migrated from Skype to Teams and they did it really quickly. Um, and I think, and I think that's definitely about, that's definitely linked to um, kind of the, the change in working practices because of COVID. Some of it's contextual, isn't it? So mm. QR codes never really work for people because they didn't have to use them. Yeah. And then suddenly you're being presented with them if you turn up to a pub or a restaurant or something like that where you have to, to sign in. Mm. It's the way I sign into my bank account, for example. Mm. I have to use a QR code if I want to go from the app to the mm. um, onto the online site. So they are becoming a bit more a bit more widespread. Mm. And I think the same with Teams. Um, I, worked for, I worked for a big accountancy firm and one of the things that we tried to do over the period of time I was there was get people to use the technology and everyone would always find a reason not to mm. and then immediately overnight it's universal adoption yeah. everyone's had to yeah. use it so it's 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 the now it's the strategic mm. use of those yeah. platforms it's yeah. it's changed from we don't need people to um, adopt the technology they've they've adopted it that's fine what we need now is people to leave it alone from time to time <laughs> yes. stop going into meetings yeah 
stop doing all of that stuff. So it's, mm. it's now it's sort of over proliferating a bit. Yeah, I think definitely interesting. I think there's also been a shift towards using technology for more than just work. When I was at Click Sergeant, there was definitely a challenge getting people to use um, some, some of the technology and some of the digital technology. But now it's almost like digital has become the link to the outside world. So now, you know, staff are frequently using Messenger in Teams. They're frequently using Yammer. And I've noticed a real change um, in, in, in the use of video in that pre-COVID, I'd go to so many meetings and people wouldn't turn their video on. And you just get the picture that comes up. Whereas now I go to meetings and the videos are always on. And I, I like to think that's a sign of people seeking that that face-to-face connection? Yeah, so I think that that's a, a brilliant question, actually, because something that's come up in a lot of the interviews that, that we, we've done uh, is about how you deal with that meeting culture that, that has very much developed during lockdown and just people being on back-to-back calls. Um, do you have any advice about that, that Vicky? Because it feels like a, a very 2020 challenge. I always thought that I, I did a lot of video calls when I was in the office, but I realised when I started working from home, the numbers were just astronomical. You, you spend almost all day on video calls and it's so much more exhausting because you, you can't, it's so hard to, you don't have the same visual cues that you have when you're in the room. Um, so you're spending a lot of time subconsciously trying to read the people that you're speaking to and work out whether or not, um, people in agreement with you, whether you've, you know, you've said too much, if you said too little, all of those kind of sort of cues that you would get quite naturally. I, I certainly went through a period where I found that um, my day would sort of start at nine o'clock, finish at six o'clock, and it would just be meeting after meeting after meeting. And I realised I was, I was exhausted, if I'm honest, I was absolutely exhausted by it. And so the, the steps that I put in place, I have one till two now, it clearly says in my diary, it's set from day one to forever, is lunch, no meetings. And, I, and I'm absolutely adamant that I won't take a meeting over my lunch break now. On the rare occasion that I might shift it, but it shifts back to 12 o'clock. But I'm absolutely adamant that I have to have a lunch break. Um, because I just found that I, I, was too, I was just, when you're that exhausted, your productivity, of course, is affected. But also um, some of my colleagues were saying that their tactics were they would put a slot in their diary in mid-afternoon. It would just say well-being time. And they, they did that deliberately because they knew that nobody would dare book a meeting over that slot, um, which I thought was a fantastic idea. But also, I think for me, um, something that I tell my teams now as well is worth telling my teams is um, to try and have a gap between meetings, even if it's just five minutes. Because also, bearing in mind, when you start a, a video call, inevitably, there is always the first five minutes of people being on mute, can't get their Wi-Fi to connect properly, um, you know, something that's not quite right. So I, I, I sort of, I, I'm very much of the opinion, actually, if you dropped your meeting down to 55 minutes, it probably would be okay. And just take those five minutes, just have a break, sort out your Wi-Fi connection, grab a coffee. I just think that it's really important, even more so now, for people to to feel that it's okay to actually take those breaks. When lockdown first started, I had that moment of kind of really enjoying the fact that I wasn't commuting an hour and a half each way. It's fantastic. But then I found myself slowly increasing my working day because I was I was up and therefore I could be working. And I realised that actually that wasn't quite 
the 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 enjoyment therefore of not commuting anymore was start to get eroded by the fact that I was just working longer hours so yeah so I think for me it's very much about that it's okay to take the breaks I think that's such a good idea to block out an actual lunch break um I, I've got into a bad habit of having back-to-back Zoom meetings all day. And then my my husband was saying to me at lunchtime today, saying, how long do you normally have lunch? And I was going, oh, about 10 minutes. He's going, <laughs> I always take half an hour and I get away from my screen. And I thought that's such good advice. I need to start doing that. Because you're right. Otherwise, by the time you get to mid-afternoon, you're you're, you're tired and your productivity is is really affected. It's a, it's a real false economy not to, to take a proper break. The other thing that I- I've seen people doing and I've tried to adopt is at least one meeting a day do on your phone and go for a walk Um, you know a nice set of Bluetooth headphones and just hooking them over your ears and off you go you go Mm. for a walk and you do that meeting um, while you you know while you're chatting you can walk while you're chatting Mm. you might be a bit out of breath walking up some of the hills (laughs) where I live but you know you'll be you'll be all right and you're much much better off for it and I also saw somebody recently somebody in my network um, who sort of works in the digital work workplace space and he said be a meeting rebel just ignore meetings with no agendas and that give you no time in between meetings I think it's quite a a nice thing to do Uh, not necessarily always the most clean (laughs) thing to do but you know I we used to do it I used to I used to challenge meetings and say look there's no agenda for this so can you let me have one otherwise mm. I've got other things that I need to prioritize but I think it's mm. a, a really good idea yeah there was certainly um a time when I worked to click sergeant where there was a um a move towards what they called walking meetings where you just t- go for a walk and have a meeting as, as you're walking around and that was lovely um I think there's the, the, the disadvantage maybe just virtual working is that there has been a bit of a pressure to almost be online all of the time. And I, I wonder whether that pressure probably comes from the individuals. It's rarely from the charity sector is what I would say. I have heard some or seen some disturbing bits on Twitter where um, there was one organisation where somebody was saying that he, he, he encourages his team to regularly check the number of hours that his staff are online. And I thought that was really quite worrying, actually, because I, I think trust is so important. Yeah. I think that's right. So um, uh, a, a long time ago, before I came over to the the charity sector, I used to be a lawyer, and um, I still friends on Facebook with some of my old colleagues there. And one of them was 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 saying, I'm not going to name the firm, but one of them was saying that they've got an an online signing in and signing out system, and it's it's just the kind of thing in a situation like this, you've got to give people, you've got to show that you trust them because ultimately they will be more more productive and they'll feel more motivated mm. I think checking up on people you're right is a is is not a good idea because otherwise why did you hire them in the yeah. first place but you're seeing this subculture I think coming through of organizations where they are saying that we're monitoring staff we're monitoring online time we're using cameras or web cameras mm. um to to make sure that people are online and you're right it just comes back to to trust and making mm. Um, making it clear that you trust your employees to do the work that they're doing, and you know, if it's if it's an issue of um, of work not getting done, that's very unlikely to be technology driven. It's much more likely to be that your your people just aren't very good at doing their jobs. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right, Vicky. I, I I think there's there's more 
we all need to think about as as individuals about how we can take a bit more control over our schedules and I I say this as as a note to myself really I was talking to um someone the the other day and I was about um you know when you just need to get your head down and get some work because I I feel like people are sending email a a lot more now I've noticed Mm -hmm. that since we went into lockdown um and this you know colleague of mine said well why don't you put your out of office on I'm saying I don't know if that's socially acceptable anymore no one seems to use their out of office anymore whereas normally normally people do but why shouldn't we all start using it if you're engaged on on some deep work for a project what's wrong with putting your out of office on for the day and saying I'm engaged in this and I will come back to you tomorrow the world's not going to end I admit I would love to be one of those people that could turn off my outlook I absolutely can't I know I know that that is a failing on my part I, it's, it's that FOMO. I can't help with the fear of missing out. There's something in me that always needs to see emails as they come in. But I absolutely wish that I could. And sometimes because I can't do that, sometimes what I would do is I'll take myself off to another room with a pen and paper and I'll go old school and I'll do my thinking and my working there. Because if I take my phone or my laptop, I'll be on my email. I know I will be. It is really addictive, isn't it? On Outlook, can you pause your inbox? Because I know you can do that in Gmail, which I use, but I've never actually done it. I wonder whether that's also a good way to, you know, to stem the tide a bit as as all the emails come in. Pause it for an hour or so. Yeah, Yeah, I I should try and do that. I should take my own advice on on this. (laughs) I think you do need to switch it off, don't you? Otherwise, or or, or turn off the notifications. I think that was the yeah. first thing I did when I was working on a Windows computer was turn off the notifications that appear in the bottom right-hand corner. And that helps. Mm. But I think you just have to be ruthless, especially with mm. the deep work. Um, and you do have to go back to the idea. FOMO is, is, is funny because when you're working for an organisation, um, I used to I used to try and avoid it as much as I possibly could. Mm. Now the reverse is true because I'm working for myself. I'm always looking at email because you kind of mm. keep thinking the next opportunity or the next yeah. thing is going to come in. And it's the same mm. with social media. I really, really try to switch off um, mm. from social media as much as I can, particularly at the moment, I'm really not enjoying Twitter. Mm. Um, and I try to switch off from it. But then I see people, other consultants, other people in my industry sharing really, really helpful and useful stuff. And I just think, oh, God, I should be doing that all of the time, too. <laughs> And you get into this vicious circle. Yeah. That means you just you just need to turn it off. You just need to walk away. And that pad and paper is exactly what I do. It's a pad and paper, your own thoughts. Yeah. Go for a walk, speak into your phone, use yeah. your notes app, whatever it takes, but just try and break that cycle of, of F5 refresh, F5 refresh. <laughs> I am slightly better at Twitter. I, I know exactly what you mean about that. Um, our previous CEO, Kate Lee, he's now Alzheimer's Society. Absolutely fantastic. But um, she really encouraged all of the ADs to um, get on Twitter. And um, although, you know, we always say that our views are our own, but we were promoting, obviously, Click Sergeant and, and you know, sharing our campaigns and, and, you know, sharing kind of best practice and all of those things. And I went through a phase, I think, linked to that where I was always on Twitter and I was finding things to post and resharing and commenting. Um, and then I think I had a weekend where I think my phone had broken and I couldn't get on Twitter. And I found actually it just, I felt refreshed because of it. So now I'm, I'm, 
I do I do look more I do look at, look at Twitter at sort of probably I tend to look at it sort of at the end of the day between five and six and that's it for me I think that's that's right. I um, I don't know whether I should say this, but I actually do restrict the time I spend on social media as well now. Otherwise, you could could literally be on there all day, couldn't you? Um, so you've shared some brilliant tips there, Vicky, as well earlier in the conversation about how to bring teams together when everyone's working remotely. You and I have had various conversations about inclusivity and how important that is and how it's a particularly burning issue in the charity sector. Um, do you have any advice on how to make digital teams more inclusive places to work? The challenge that has often occurred in charities is that the digital team have been a team somewhere in the organisation who are perceived to be working in a different way and having all the fun projects. And and I think that has made it, that's almost perpetuated that silo working culture and it's made people not want to engage in digital. So, I mean, for me, certainly what I've learned is that it's about being able to be really clear and articulate really well that digital isn't the responsibility of one team. It's the entire organisation's responsibility. And I think that your digital team, irrespective of where they sit, whether it's technology or media and comms, need to be a cross-organisational team. They need to work as a cross-organisational team. Um, Because I think that's the only way that they are going to be able to bring the organisation with them. Um, I mean, there, there are lots and lots of ways around making the team inclusive. I've been thinking a lot about sort of different leadership um, approaches, obviously joining a new organisation. Um, and one of the things I think that's been really critical with digital is that, yes, you have to have strong leadership. And Zoe, we've talked about this a lot, you know, like with the with your executive teams and, and your board of trustees. But I also think that you that that you know leaders can emerge at all different levels in an organization. And often when you're trying to break down those culture barriers around digital, it can often be the kind of the more informal leaders that can chip away at it. So I think there's something in um, identifying different types of leaders right across the, the organisation who will link back and work with that digital team, who will really kind of share that messaging, communicate the vision, chip away, be really persistent to kind of make the change that you want to happen. We talk a lot about, you know, always sharing successes and, and that's and that's lovely. It is lovely. But I've become much more interested in sharing the failures, if I'm honest, because I think if you think about like gossip in an office, generally people are gossiping about things that went wrong. And that's where people really get on board. If you're someone who's not very good with technology or digital, knowing that not everyone always gets it right, that makes you feel better. It makes you feel that you can you can kind of engage with digital. So I think something that's really important around those teams are is about really being open about um, what they're doing, how they've done it, sharing what's gone wrong. Um, but I think the kind of the next step from that is really showing what they're going to do differently. It's easy to get into a trap of doing lots of reviews and showing this is what went well and this is what went, went wrong. And then they get sh- um, filed on SharePoint and no one ever looks at them again. And then you start another project and you hit the same barriers again and same blockers making sure that staff feels that digital belongs to them not just to that team I think that's really key because I just don't see how you can make a culture change if you don't bring your staff with you how do you best see that how do you make sure that that 
they see it's for them. I mean, I think I think there's lots and lots of ways. I almost think sometimes you you, you almost can't over communicate in this area. Um, I mean, and there's communicating, but there's also engaging as well. But I think um, it's really listening to your staff, understanding kind of the barriers that they have, but being able to then articulate for them how digital is going to help them solve those problems. Something Click Sergeant did for a brief period of time, but they did these um, confessionals. So I think the first one was the CEO admitting that she had no idea about what SharePoint was. Um, but it's, it's the kind of thing that staff engage with. I think that's a brilliant idea because actually yesterday I was talking to someone about how we can use social in particular to destigmatize that that fear because I think we've all in our respective mm-hmm. jobs come across stakeholders where you can tell they're really uncomfortable with using a new tool or the level of organizational change and I think we need to make it okay to be scared and to say this is really uncomfortable for Mm. me and I need some help with this Mm. that's normal isn't it we need to make it socially acceptable to admit that that we all have reservations and fears about certain aspects of technology it's funny because I go to meetings and um sometimes something won't work in, in the room and someone will say well Vicky could you look at this and resolve this and I think to them I think to myself well no not really I've got no idea I've got absolutely nothing so I'll say to them well I think you might need to contact IT support actually because I'm quite I'm quite open in admitting that I don't know everything about everything <laughs> there has to be some limits um, but it's interesting I think people find that really reassuring especially when you've got someone who a, maybe it's in a leadership role, but especially a technical leadership role that's quite open to saying, actually, I've got no idea. I think that's that's a really good good point. Um, and then on, on that note about what that new forward slash unnerving, hopefully exciting future looks like, what do you think that the future holds for civil society post-pandemic? What do you think it could look like? I don't know that I'm going to give you the, the kind of the what it will look like, but I do think that there are a lot of opportunities. I know this is a terrible time for for kind of the everybody, you know, in the external environment for lots of reasons. And of course, you know, the financial um, climate for charities is, is exceptionally challenging. Um, so I don't want to kind of underplay any of that. But I do think that the way that we've had to respond and react to um, this crisis has shown us that there are quite a few opportunities. Charities need to take the time to reflect and really think about what they've learned during this period of time. You know, we've talked a lot about the social kind of connection and how important it is, and I absolutely agree with that. But equally, you know, we have lots of charities of really large London expensive offices, and I think there's an opportunity there for us to consider extending virtual working, um, downsizing offices, or using our offices in a different way. And that might be that might be partnering with other charities or it might be making them into much more collaborative kind of um, working spaces. This period has shown us that we're able to adapt and think quite creatively and innovatively in, in a, whilst working at pace. I would really like to see charities continuing to push digital as their first means. So maybe being less reliant, for example, on, on the traditional means of fundraising. Because actually digital has shown that you it can be used to reach so many more people. And yes, there are challenges with digital, but it can also be an equaliser. And I think that it gives us a lot of opportunities to raise income in a more cost-effective way. It's really hard to make cultural changes in digital. 
it's it's just it's making any cultural changes actually is tough because it takes so long to embed but actually this environment for most charities i would think that they've been able to jump forward quite a few steps forward in in kind of that digital mindset of their staff and i'd love to see i think us capitalizing on that and really continuing to push it rather than just accepting that it's happened but maybe going back to the older ways of working brilliant that was fantastic vicky thank you so much You've no problem really insightful about the digital challenges facing charities in the current climate but also that unique situation of starting a, a new job during lockdown and how you settle in and also how you bring your team together as as well so thank you so much for being such a thought-provoking fascinating <laughs> guest no problem at all um it's been really interesting for me oh sorry my cat just thought my leg <laughs> that's probably too much information i'm so sorry no that's exactly how we're ending the podcast <laughs> So thank you very much for listening through to the end of episode two, season two. We'll be back in a week or so. And our next episode, we'll be talking to Liz Williams, CEO of Future.Now. Uh, we are also potentially planning a Christmas special looking at leaders' tech predictions for 2021. Uh, so do let us know if that's something that you'd like to be involved in. Uh, as usual, please do send us your feedback. We'd love to hear about anything that you feel that you'll do differently after hearing from any of our speakers from the series. You can share your plans, ideas or questions with us on Twitter. We're at Starts at the Top 1. That's start, at Starts at the Top 1. And you can email us at Starts at the Top Podcast at gmail.com. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you can. Thank you to all our listeners and we'll speak to you again very soon.